0: Time for Legally Speaking, joined as always by barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, Michael Mulligan with Legally Speaking. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Let's get started. A former tenant, it says here, appeals to the BC Court of Appeal trying to get back rent, I believe, in the amount of 12 months. That's right. Uh, and this is uh, one of a number of cases that
1: are, you, and you now see them winding up in court because of the amount of money involved. Uh, And it's a a case involving uh, an alleged breach under Section 51.1 of the Residential Tenancy Act. And I'll get to the precise elements of that in just a moment. But it's part of a a theme that's occurred over the past few years that I think accelerated through COVID uh, of making changes to the Residential Tenancy Act uh restricting uh, all sorts of things like uh, stopping uh rents from going up or stopping anyone from being evicted or uh other things of that sort. Um and I should say most of the reason why our courts aren't filled with people who are in contract uh, disputes is contracts are generally agreements between people that are consensual. Both parties entered into the agreement, right? Yes. And so Usually there isn't going to be a dispute about that. You know, things happen, there are misunderstandings, things go awry. But most of the time it's people agree. hey, do you want to buy my car for this amount? Yes, I do. <laughs> and so that doesn't go to court. Nobody's got to make some order about it. The person pays for the car and off the other person goes with the car. Oh, off we are, right? Uh, but the further we get away from agreements which are genuinely consensual, the greater the probability we're going to have disputes over them, right? Um, and that is clearly occurring in the context of residential tenancy. Um, and what appears to be going on is you've got the government, for understandable political reasons, uh, engaged in, I think, what could only be described as sort of populist uh, policies, doing things like imposing rent freezes, right? Uh, no doubt that's popular because tenants outnumber people Landlords, yes. right? And so, if you're looking to get votes from people, that seems like a great idea. Uh, but it has consequences. Uh, and uh, so, when uh, r- restrictions are put in place so that tenancies can't be ended and rents can't be raised, you wind up with a circumstance where the parties are no longer in some consensual agreement where they both are satisfied that this is uh, good for them, right? Uh, you're in a circumstance where Uh, one person doesn't really want to be in the agreement, right? Uh, And so various things that happen, like in a tube of toothpaste, people try to get out of things they don't want to be involved in, right? And that produces rancor and disagreement and ultimately litigation. And that's what we're seeing. Hmm. This particular section of the Residential Tenancy Act was uh, modified uh, in in last year. And it's a section that deals with compensation where a landlord gives notice uh, that they wish to move into the unit or use it themselves right uh, which is a way in which a tenancy can be ended because it, and the section's been would appear used more frequently because various other ways that a tenancy could be ended by a landlord have been foreclosed right like you can't have a tenancy that ends after a specific period of time for example right mm. uh, and so then disputes arise naturally about things like well did the landlord really move into the unit who moved into that place right things like that yeah and so the land the legislation was changed to for example uh try to restrict uh, who uh could have to who could move into a unit like it has to be a close family member which has been defined as the landlord their spouse a child of the landlord or the spouse or the mother or father of the landlord or spouse so all kinds of other people who might legitimately want to move in, somebody's brother or sister or nephew or cousin or all sorts of things don't qualify. And so it produced disputes about, well, who was that person, right, that moved in? And apparently, and this is between a period of January 1st, 2021 and April 30th, 2023, there were 2,200 applications to the residential tenancy branch of tenants claiming that hey, this wasn't uh, right. The person didn't move in, or they didn't move in promptly. That kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the um, government response to that uh, sort of part of the toothpaste too popping out because of course you had you've got this agreement in place that's no longer really consensual, right? That's the fundamental part of it, right? You have a circumstance where people who are tenants are paying well below what the actual market value for. a unit might be, right? And so the landlord naturally doesn't want that, and so there'd be an incentive to try to stop that. This would be one of the ways that that manifested itself. And when the government saw that part of the toothpaste tube expanding, uh, they responded by increasing the penalty uh, where uh, a landlord uses this section to have a tenant removed but then doesn't move into the unit, right? And what the government did was increase the uh, amount of money that a tenant could get in that event from two months to 12 months rent. And that, as a result, probably to try to disincentivize uh, landlords making a false claim, right, that they were going to move into the unit. But there are two sides to everything. And that seems to have produced now a circumstance where it's not really compensation, it's turned into a potential lottery win for the tenant. And the case that uh, came uh, just released this week. It's a Victoria case. It's out of Saanich, actually, I should say, greater mm-hmm. Victoria. Yeah. And it's a circumstance where a landlord gave notice that they wished to move into a unit that they owned in Saanich. So they gave notice. And according to the decision, the tenants uh, vacated the property. They quickly found new accommodations. But then what happened is the uh, landlord was renovating the unit before he was moving into it. Uh, and the district of Saanich yeah, uh, put a stop work order on the renovations, and demanded act, uh, architectural drawings and asbestos testing be done. So the person did those things, but it then took four months before they could complete the renovations and move in. And they did move in, right? After four months, they moved into the unit. But this, because of the twelve month penalty provision, that that presumably incentivized the tenant to make a claim saying, oh, this wasn't, uh, they didn't move in fast enough. Uh, And they won. Uh, They went to the residential tenancy branch, and the arbitrator concluded, yes, this was too slow moving in. Uh, It took you four months to move in. And so that then precipitated uh, an appeal, a judicial review of that decision to the B.C. Supreme Court, uh, where the B.C. Supreme Court judge found that the arbitrator's decision was patently unreasonable, uh, because it didn't take into account the fact that the uh, landlord was unable to move into the unit because the renovations weren't done, because there was a stop work order and process for asbestos testing and architectural drawings. That wasn't the end of it, of course, because there is a $22,000 incentive, actually $22,001 <laughs> at four cents. Uh, so well, it was hard to know how that rent was calculated, but nonetheless, that was the order. And so off the matter went then to the Court of Appeal. Uh, and so uh, we then just received the, just got the uh, decision posted on uh, uh, just last week, the court of appeal uh, dismissing uh, the appeal from the Supreme court decision. Hmm. And so the landlord who got hung up on the uh, architectural drawings and the asbestos testing won't have to pay the former tenant, the $22,001. But uh, this is not an isolated case. As I said, they're, 2,200 cases over that time period I specified. Uh, And it is, again, an example of what happens when we no longer allow people to enter into mutual agreements and we try to force people uh, to do things they don't want to be doing. It produces disputes, a lot of them. Uh, And so uh, we're going to see these things as long as we have a continued circumstance where for no doubt good political reasons, right, Uh, we continue to try to uh, outsmart the market and force people to do things they don't want to be doing, which is really unfortunate. And so I suppose uh, this first part of the uh, show today would be uh, an homage to the idea of uh, autonomy and freedom for people to come to mutual agreement to contract for things rather than trying to force people to do things for political reasons. And I should say, if there's a a good uh, public policy reason why we should, for example, be subsidizing rent, right? Maybe that should be a government uh, policy. That's Mm -hmm. fine. There would be ways to achieve that without trying to effectively tax landlords to subsidize rents, which is kind of what we're doing, right? By forcing people to remain in agreements that they don't want to be in. Um, And so it's not to say you you couldn't have... uh, that kind of a policy, if we conclude that we want to have cheaper rent uh, for people, you could achieve that by taxing everyone and giving money to tenants. That would achieve that objective without this, right? Because this kind of uh, litigation and rancor and uh, people legally fighting with one another is what's precipitated by uh, trying to force people to do things that they don't want to do. Um, And so I guess this is an homage to, uh, again, uh, people's autonomy. uh, And we should start from the proposition that people should be free to enter into agreements with one another uh, and not try to force some alternative, even if it seems like a short-term popular political thing to do, uh, because it will produce um, dissatisfaction, litigation, and ultimately there's other long-term effects, which anyone uh, could see. Uh, which would include who in the world would want to become a landlord uh, in a circumstance where uh, you could be uh, trapped in some agreement you don't want to be in uh, or be subject to having to pay uh, uh, amounts of money to people uh, if you ever wish to, for example, move into the condo unit that you were trying to rent. And so that's the, of course, the other uh, problem with all of this is we're disincentivizing people from doing exactly what we want them to do, which would be, do things like build apartments, buy them and rent them, so that we can have more places for people to live. Um, So uh, that's what's happening. And uh, I guess until they get sorted out, uh, we'll continue to see these kinds of things, not only going to residential tenancy disputes, but uh, winding up in court, uh, which is clearly where uh, many of them at least are headed because of the amount of money
0: involved. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking here on CFAX 1070. We'll take a break and we'll continue right after this. Legally speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Up next on the agenda, Michael, a woman found not criminally responsible on account of a mental disorder for kidnapping a four-year-old in 2018. Complicated case.
1: Yes, indeed. It is a complicated case, but I should say it's also, I think, illustrative of... The kinds of things that you've talked about in terms of repeat violent offending, what might be at the root of some of that. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's also perhaps a, a cautionary tale of waiting for the criminal justice system to do something rather than doing something in advance, right? Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and the background of it is this woman uh, who's uh, in her late 30s uh, has uh, treatment resistant schizoaffective disorder, uh, bipolar disorder, and substance abuse disorder, probably. Diagnoses, which would not be uh, uncommon, certainly not unheard of, if you drive down Pandora Street and look out uh, uh, at at what's going on in that part of the uh, city at the moment. Indeed, Um, uh, and uh, her uh, this uh, these disorders uh, manifested in her case uh, in bizarre delusions, believing that she had telepathy, healing powers, and that she'd given birth to multiple angel babies. And what that produced uh, was uh, her on multiple occasions. Trying to abduct children, uh, believing that the children were hers. Oh, I see. Uh, uh, And that occurred more than once. And the uh, after that occurred more than once, the woman uh, on the uh, most recent occasion, um, she was on a bus. Um, There was somebody else there with a four-year-old. She somehow became uh, of the belief that the child was her angel baby. Grabbed the child. Had tried to leave the bus, uh, only by the intervention of uh, another man who happened to be on the bus did that get prevented. But the woman, to give you some idea, she got off and called 911 saying, somebody has stolen my baby. Oh. Right? And so she was of the belief that that's what was going on. The result of all of that is that she was eventually found to be not criminally responsible as a result of a mental disorder, despite the fact that she didn't... Uh, adduce that defense at her trial uh, which is probably a function of what the court of appeal has described um, as her having no insight into her mental disorder right and so she genuinely believes that these people are
0: all her children that she's trying to it uh, must be terrible take. so like, and she can't save them because in her in her like what she believes oh that's awful that's right
1: and very and also very resistant to treatment. Right, She believes these things are real, and that's what she's doing. All of that is complicated by uh, drug use. Uh, and so, uh, well, uh, uh, after being found not criminally responsible, she's been in the mental hospital, uh, and on more than one occasion, she said um, there are things that are review board hearings that occur periodically once somebody's finally classified in that way to determine whether they would be safe to be released again. Um, And the conclusion on multiple occasions has been no, Um, and perhaps not surprisingly, given that uh, her mental health conditions are not susceptible to treatment readily. She doesn't uh, want to take medication. She believes these things are real. Uh, And furthermore, she seems to have somehow been able to get a hold of drugs, even when in that custodial setting, and on multiple occasions, tested positive for them, and as described as having punched or struck other people uh, during the periods of time when she after she tested positive for these drugs or at the same time. Hmm. So that's the fact pattern, right? And her case has now gone to the court of appeal not once but twice uh, with her appealing. Uh, these review board decisions that have concluded that, look, she just can't be released. Uh, She's going to uh, represent a a danger. That One of the doctor's uh, evidence was that uh, if she was released, she was likely to use drugs, go off her medication, become psychotic, and would likely be violent or attempt to abduct abduct more children. That would be the consequence. Um, And so uh, the uh, Court of Appeal has now on two occasions Uh, most recently, just a couple of days ago, uh, found that the review board decisions were supportable, right? Uh, The uh, Court of Appeal has generally said that there should be deference, of course, to decisions of the uh, review board because it has specialized knowledge and insight um, into things like uh, mental health conditions that a court isn't ordinarily going to have, right? And so that's one of the reasons why there's a significant amount of deference there. But The other thing that caused me to think just reading that decision, a couple of things. One is that it's an example of how when somebody is found not to be criminally responsible as a result of a mental disorder, that's not some get-out-of-jail-free card. That may be you're going to be in secure custody potentially for the rest of your life, right? Because you're not susceptible to treatment. You're not going to be released if you remain a danger. Uh, But... So that's I think an important thing for people to know about, right when you hear about those decisions, it's not like, "Oh, the person's off. it could be no, they're just now going to be in custody of a different kind um potentially forever uh but the case, I think is also an example of the sort of fact that, the sort of background and some insight into what leads to random acts of violence, yeah. right this woman. Yeah. Randomly assaulting people, she's grabbing children, sort of on the face of you. what on earth is going on, right? Um, that's what's going on. That's the underlying issue. And so it does also cause me to reflect upon, should we really be waiting for this person to get to the point where she's uh, attempting to abduct children? right? Should we wait for that? No. Maybe there should have been some earlier intervention here. And it need not have waited to the point where it is criminal conduct, right? She has this long history described with the um, mental health uh, and criminal justice system. Surely at some point prior to this, without waiting for uh, a crime to have occurred, there should have been some intervention. Uh, And that's one of the areas in which our system is really lacking uh, and if you want to do something about uh, these sort of random, apparently random, um, uh, assaults and other very serious activity, perhaps we want to get on it a bit earlier, yeah. right? And not yeah. wait till it's a criminal justice problem or what do we do with her, a bail or what sentence do we impose, right? When you have the person who's been diagnosed with treatment-resistant schizoaffective disorder and substance abuse disorder, uh, and they believe the things this person believes. Surely we should be able to figure out we need to intervene here, right? We should intervene here, uh, but that requires some resources, and we shouldn't wait uh, to the point where this kind of thing happens before we intervene. If we got on it earlier, we could have avoided what I'm sure would have been a frightening nightmare for the person who think it was a grandma with the four-year-old boy on the bus. That's awesome. And and also, surely that's a more humane uh, way to deal with somebody who's got sort of a serious mental health difficulty, right? Clearly, she's in need of help and on an ongoing basis. So um, that's uh, that's a very sad circumstance and should provide some insight into the kind of things that underlie the problems that we are seeing all over this uh,
0: city and elsewhere in the province. Thank you for that example, Michael. It's helpful. We have uh, three and a half minutes left. I think we can do this last story in that time. Yeah,
1: this is another Court of Appeal decision which just came out, uh, and it was a a case involving a Crown appeal to a sentence imposed for a conviction for manslaughter involving a firearm. Uh, And the background of that is that a number of years ago, we had some changes to the criminal code that imposed all kinds of mandatory minimum sentences. One of them was a mandatory minimum sentence for manslaughter with respect to a fi- involving a firearm, right? And that, provision- that section provides for a four-year mandatory minimum sentence where that occurs. This was a case where the background was uh, three people in a home Uh, They had a uh, firearm, it had some jamming issues. One of them took it outside and test-fired it into a tree on a farm, whether that's a good idea or not is another matter, Mm -hmm. brought it in, leaned it up, second man picked up the firearm to examine it uh, and do something with it, and it went off uh, and hit a woman in the stomach, killing her, right? Nobody intended to do that, but that's what happened. Uh, and so he was charged and ultimately convicted of uh, manslaughter, uh, and part of that was that he uh, was uh, you know, seriously negligent in terms of how he handled the firearm, right? Uh, there are various rules and somebody's handling a firearm, like assuming the thing is always loaded, yes. making sure it's pointed in a safe direction, Yep. don't put your finger on the trigger, Yep. Uh, check it to make sure it's safe, like look at it, take the magazine out, look inside, right? Don't just uh, hope for the best. Uh, And so he was convicted, Um, and when he was convicted, the judge found that the four-year sentence in his case would have been uh, grossly disproportionate uh, in terms of a sentence, and so the judge didn't impose that. Instead, imposed a conditional sentence to be served at home, and that's what led to the appeal to the Court of Appeal. Uh, And the Court of Appeal here concluded that, at least on this man's, on this fact pattern, the man's moral culpability was higher than what the judge uh, uh, assumed it was or concluded it was for the purpose of imposing a sentence because the the court of appeal found that the man had done multiple things, of course, that were a marked departure from the standard of care of a reasonable person handling a firearm, right? Yes. All those things we just talked about. Uh, and so the court of appeal found that, no, this wasn't a circumstance where there was a uh, sort of a low, uh, standard of uh, care breached. It was a serious one. And so, for that reason, the Court of Appeal found that even though the fifth sentence would have been, the Court of Appeal found three years, and the Court of Appeal said that, look, even though that uh, four-year sentence might be disproportionate or excessive, it's not so disproportionate or excessive to amount to being grossly disproportionate, which is the test for a section to be unconstitutional. And so, as a result, the Court of Appeal found that Uh, that the the sentence wasn't grossly disproportionate uh, and that uh, it shouldn't have been uh, found to be so by the trial judge. However, the Court of Appeal found that given how much time had gone by and the fact the person had already served the sentence, they weren't going to require the person to go back in to jail to serve the balance that otherwise would have been remaining. So I guess the takeaway there is be very careful handling a firearm. Don't just assume the thing's unloaded uh, and it uh, could go off and have tragic uh, results uh, if you don't do that.
0: Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking, during the second half of our second hour every Thursday. Michael, pleasure as always. Until next week. Thanks so much. Have a great day. All right. Bye now.